0: Coming up, an interview with Reverend Carrie Parker, director of the Wisconsin Council of Churches, on her life in ministry and work across the state of Wisconsin. After the music.
1: Welcome to the Upwards podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church.
0: Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Dan, your host here at Upper House, speaking to you once again from Madison, Wisconsin, where the weather is cold and icy and cloudy, in the depth of winter, really, and looking forward to warmer, brighter, sunnier days in the coming weeks. Hopefully. We'll see. March is always uh, uh, an edge case here uh, between winter and spring in Madison. Well, today on the podcast, we're very excited to talk to one of our local ministry leaders here in Madison and actually in the state of Wisconsin. One of the types of people we love to interview here on the podcast are full-time ministers at work in our community. And I'd even just refer you to episode 31 a few months ago with Pastor Kirk Morledge for the most recent of these types of conversations. We love interviewing local ministry leaders because they often have fascinating stories of their journeys into the ministry and unique insights into the potential And challenges of the communities in which they serve and for us here in Madison that we serve. And that's certainly true today of our guest, Reverend Carrie Parker, who is the current director of the Wisconsin Council of Churches. She's been in that role for over four years now and in recent months has led a grant called Awaken Dane that we here at Upper House are a part of as well. And we'll hear a little more about that later in the episode. We mentioned Awaken Dane in the last episode with Parker Palmer, and we'll do so again in the next episode. It's an initiative that speaks to a lot of the hopes we have for the church in Madison, namely revitalization and amid pretty strong headwinds in church world and in our broader culture. Speaking with Reverend Parker today is Upper House's Executive Director, John Terrell who guides us from hearing about Carrie's childhood and education to her more recent work on forming church responses to COVID-19. Prior to coming to the Wisconsin Council of Churches, Carrie served as pastor of McFarland United Church of Christ in McFarland, Wisconsin, and as executive director of YWCA Rock County in Janesville, Wisconsin. So a lot of experience in and around the Madison area. As always, we hope that you are enjoying the podcast, encourage you to send us any messages at podcast at foundation.org. And if you feel so inclined to rate our podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. So without further ado, here's an upwards conversation with Reverend Carrie Parker.
2: Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation. I've been looking forward to it for a long time. I've had the privilege of working with you in a number of different contexts most, um, recently, um, on awakened day. And we'll talk a little bit about that later, but I wonder, um, Carrie, if you could just take us back to, um, your early life, what was your spiritual context growing up? What was it like in your home, family and neighborhood? I'd, I'd love to, uh, explore that part of who you are.
1: Okay. Um, Well, first of all, I am not a Midwesterner, so I have to confess that straight up. I grew up on the East Coast in Rhode Island. So if you catch me dropping my Rs, that's why. Um, I grew up um, as an only child. Part of my childhood was in a neighborhood with a bunch of kids. And part of my childhood was in the town next door. Um, where I was just me and the outdoors. So we uh, moved from one house to another. And the place we moved to was more of an exurb and other kids were a little bit too far away. So my family wasn't really religious when I was growing up, but we became regulars at the congregational church. Um, little itty-bitty congregational church in a mill village, um, dated from the 1800s. Um, And that was the church that I grew up in. And so it was a place of community and connection, and probably from about second grade on, that was my sense of what church should be, um, getting to run around <laughs> the building with the other kids um, and not get into too much trouble. Um, and, you know, the feeling of the texture of the church cushions and things like that. Like, I have all of these sensory memories of what church was. But aside from that, my strongest childhood memories were books in the outdoors.
2: That's no, that's great. And I, you know, I spent a number of years in new England and um, there is something very unique and wonderful about the new England church and, and the setting of, of the church. I wonder if you could just um, just spend a minute or two painting a picture of what that church was like. I, for those who haven't lived in new England, and 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 you noted even a congregational church, which um, you know congregational churches are prevalent in that part of the country. Um, paint a paint a picture of 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 what what it's like to attend a, a New England church.
1: So the church I attended was in a, a mill village. So the the mills were were built up to uh, accommodate lots of the textile industry, um, and lots of the the mill owners would build all the industry in their villages to accommodate that. And of course, you know, you need a church too. Um, And so, you know, you might end up with a Baptist church or a congregational church or you name it. And, you know, the congregationalists were what happened to the pilgrims, we usually say, when people get confused But this particular church was built in the 1800s in memory of the mill owners, deceased young children, because of course you had lots of kids dying really young in those years. So stone, gray stone and memorial plaques for these kids and stained glass. So always looking at Jesus and the children and Jesus and the sheep up front in the stained glass, Um, little itty bitty organ because it was a little itty bitty church. Um, I think the choir loft seated all of 15 people packed to the gills, (laughs) Um, but that was attached by the time I grew up to, um an education wing that had been built in the 60s and was all of 1960s glory (laughs) um we sang lots of hymns from a hymnal singing was a big part of our church lots of music um and the sermon was a big part of the service but it was always you know on the dot about an hour long because somebody was going to complain if it wasn't
2: that's great. Yeah. It's, uh, thank you. I, it's uh, fond memories come back from those years. Um, I was, I was in New England as an adult, but, but it, the impressions are are really strong and lasting of the New England church. So we're going to jump a whole bunch of years here um, and, and I'll leave it to you to kind of help us navigate what really stands out as important. But I wonder if you could share with our listeners, um, The experience, some of the experiences, educational or otherwise, that led to your led you toward vocational ministry, you know, as a as a choice for your work.
1: Well, I mean, you're asking a pastor. So I have the really short version of this and the really long version
2: of this. Dive in. Dive in. Let's spend a few minutes on it.
1: Well, at a certain point, you just stop saying no or catch me later to God. Mm Mm-hmm. I remember when I was a little kid um, playing worship in the living room, turning over cardboard boxes and borrowing my mother's um, dish towels to use as as pyramids, like the church linens on the the table. And um, we had an old hymnal in the house that had been decommissioned by the church. And I remember flipping through that and picking hymns and looking at an old worship bulletin and like literally cutting and taping together pieces. So my friends are like, you should have known back then, Carrie. (laughs) Um, But later on, I was very active in the youth group. I ended up preaching my confirmation sermon at the age of 14. Wow. And then there was just like this lull. As an adult, I got super involved in the church um, and like started proposing all of these activities. Hey, what if we have a mom and me play group? What if we have a pizza and a movie night? What if we have this experimental worship service? And somebody apparently said to the pastor, why doesn't she just go to seminary? <laughs> And around that point, I was really unsettled in a job that should have been ideal. It was like the perfect match of my undergraduate degree and what I had done professionally to that point. And I just remember being so unsettled and sitting in the church on a Thursday night after a Holy Week service and just praying and saying, God, just tell me what it is you want me to do. And clear as a bell in my heart, I hear, feed my sheep.
2: Wow. wow.
1: Oh, holy Batman.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right.
1: Right. I'm like, okay, you know, in this context, what what can I do with this?
2: Yeah. Carrie, that was about, you were about how old at that point?
1: I was a young mom. So I was in my late twenties.
2: Late twenties. Okay, great. Just to give a context. So you've been out of school for a number of years and been working and um, we're off on your own. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, And so I had to figure out, you know, how, how do I make all this happen? What do I do? And it took a little bit to get all that coordinated. I was working and going to seminary and parenting and all of those things and finally made my way through seminary and into um, ministry that I was being paid to do instead of ministry that I was volunteering to do. <laughs>
2: Great. So, how did you find um, seminary, and and the seminary choice that you made? I I I want to explore also the United Church of Christ. I'm assuming they probably had some some coherent linkage the two experiences. But but walk us through the seminary choice, the decision to attend seminary, and then how did you find a home in the United Church of Christ?
1: So. I attended um, the Chicago Theological Seminary, which is in Hyde Park in Chicago. In the Midwest, my denomination, the United Church of Christ, has three seminaries that it's affiliated with. Um, There's one in St. Louis, there's one in Minneapolis-St. Paul, and there's one in Chicago, and not being in a position to move my family, Chicago would work if I did an extreme commute. So if I decided I wanted to do a denominational seminary, it was going to be CTS Chicago.
2: And And I decided... You were living time. The the extreme commute involved commuting from where to where? Well, Chicago was the destination, but where were you living at that point?
1: I was commuting from Janesville. So I drove from Janesville to the metro station in Harvard. I took commuter rail from Harvard into downtown Chicago. Then I walked, then I took a bus, then I walked from the bus.
2: Door to door, how long was the commute? <laughs>
1: um, I left just before five in the morning and I got home a little after nine at night.
2: Okay. And, and the commute one way was about how long?
1: Uh, about four hours, depending.
2: All right, all right. So you're you're faithful to God's call. This is uh, this is an act of obedience.
1: Yeah, it's you know it was it was a big commitment. Um, I had to make some things move, and God had to make some things move to make this work. Um, even right at the beginning, I was half a semester in and I had somebody at my employer say, well, you know, you can have this promotion, but you got to stop going to school. And I, I flipped out, honestly, I went to my pastor and I said, how I I can't, I don't understand how this is going to work. And, you know, my pastor very patiently sat and listened and I'm like, I can't I can't quit school. I can't not do this. You know, whenever you say you can't not do this, God's going to figure something out. You know, this is, this is part of my call. And the board president at the organization I was working at said to me, don't worry about the board of directors. I'll handle them. Keep going to school.
0: Wow. Wow. That's, Yeah.
2: Yeah. So the doors opened and I interrupted your story about kind of landing at Chicago and making choices. Uh, You were, I think, going to lead in with the connection between your seminary choice and the United Church of Christ. And
1: yeah, so
2: continue with that story. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I had been involved in the United Church of Christ pretty much since I was a kid up. Um, My family had not always been our abbreviation is UCC. So my family had not always been affiliated with the UCC. When I was really little, we went to the Episcopal church that was my grandfather's. And that was the first church I have vague memories of. And we used to go on Easter and Christmas, you know, the holiday people. And then one Easter, um, my, my godfathers, my baptismal sponsors, family said, why don't you come to church with us? And family legend has it that I kicked and I fussed and I said, but I want to go to my church. I did not win that argument. And we went to my godfather's church, which is how I ended up in the UCC. As it turns out, there are a lot of things as an adult I like and appreciate about our denomination's values, but, you know, as, as a second grader, little did I know.
2: That's great. Great story. Great story. So, um, so what happens after seminary? Um, that's a a long process of commuting and trying to work and figure that out, um, what, where did your what was your call your first call after um, seminary? Uh, and I want to talk a seminary little.
1: Seminary was a six year journey. Um, it would have been three years full time, but I went part time. I was working full time as a nonprofit executive, and I was single momming and going to seminary half time as an extreme commuter. And when I finished, the question was, you know, where was, where was I going to serve? What was I going to do? And we have what's called a search and call process in my denomination. So, you know, you, you essentially date one another as, as congregation and pastor and figure out like, Hey, this is my dating profile. This is your dating profile. Do we match? And I like to joke that I was speed dated together with a congregation by our regional executive um, because they saw a skills match with what a congregation needed. My first call was to this wonderful congregation in suburban Madison um, that had reached a point where they weren't financially self-sustaining, and they needed help to get to the point where they could be. so it was what was called turnaround call. They had to have financial help from the region to be able to afford a full-time pastor's salary, and we had a commitment together for three years to say, "Can we make this a go and We ended up making it a a settled thing within two years um, because we were such a good match and it was working so well. And it was fabulous. I just, I can't say enough good things about them. Lovely, lovely people. And we retooled the ministry of the congregation to match the ministry context of the congregation. You know, when I arrived, they didn't have ministries that focused on children and families. And yet the community was full of the things that are oriented around children and families. That was a thing we had to do. Um, and get to the point where we could be creative together and the congregation could believe in itself again.
2: Yeah. It was a good match. They did. That, that's a positive example of speed dating. It actually worked out.
1: It doesn't always work out that always well. Always work out. But, no,
2: that's, that's a positive story. Did you have a pastoral position after that? Um, or did, is that the position that led into the Wisconsin Council of Churches?
1: That's the position that led into the Wisconsin Council of Churches. And I like saying the Holy Spirit then diagrammed my passions together
2: at the council. And I want to explore that. We're going to move into the Wisconsin Council of Churches, because I know our listeners are going to be really fascinated by the work that WCC does and your vision for it. But let's just linger a little bit on your role as a pastor. I, I'm curious to know what you found most challenging about being a pastor. Ooh. What you found most gratifying.
1: I think the most challenging thing about being a pastor is Sunday keeps coming. Mm. You know, you you always need to keep coming up with a sermon. You always need to keep wrestling with the text on behalf of the people, right? There is no respite every single week. there There is something to bring to that dynamic of pastor and people and the worship of God. And, you know, I I say it's challenging, but I love it. I love that worship moment with the people. But, you know, even my very first Sunday with that congregation was at the beginning of Advent. And so, four weeks before Christmas, here we go super busy church season, Zoom. And being an inexperienced pastor, I didn't have a library of resources I could lean on. It's not like I had. Oh, here we go. I'll pull out my Christmas season sermons. <laughs> in terms of what I find most gratifying, I would say the experience of knowing a community well. You know, as a pastor, you're with the people, you know, again, week in, week out. You're, you sit with people in times of distress and with celebration, and you bless the babies and you're there at the graveside. And, you know, the same people you've done that with, you look out at on Christmas Eve when they're lighting candles and you see the tears in their eyes, right? You can craft worship, knowing things about people. You can craft the words of your sermons and the encounter with scripture, knowing things about people. And, you know, as much as I love the preaching I get to do now in my role at the council, it has a different character to it when I just parachute in than when you have that deep engagement with the community.
2: I want to explore this idea of discernment. How did you learn to pay attention? How did you learn to pay attention to what, God was prompting you or what you felt um, the people needed at a particular moment in time.
1: You know, I think all that playing outside when I was a child did a lot to teach me about paying attention. When you're outside in the woods in all seasons and you learn what the birds sound like when the air smells like this in that change of season. And, oh, look, the willow trees are turning yellow. The ground must be fine. And, you know, I'm not claiming every pastor should be a naturalist in order to discern well. But I think there's There's something about being intimately acquainted with an environment and coming at it with your senses open and your heart open, trusting that what you need to encounter will be revealed to you that day. I mean, I think there's a profound sense of trust in God that needs to come if you're going to engage in discernment seriously.
2: It's a real process. And I I think um, just as someone who's worked with you in a broader um, community-wide grant and the kind of discernment that you've brought to that project, I think I, I can see how the gifts and the skills you honed in your local congregational con- context really have contributed to the broader community as a whole. So we'll explore that. I-, I know you're now currently working on your doctor of ministry degree in prophetic leadership. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that and and the role of prophetic leadership. How does it fit into who you are and um, how does it fit into what's needed in the world today?
1: So you know, speaking of discernment, you know, there's always this itch, right, of wanting to learn more. So last year, I got that sense of I, I needed a community to help me think through some of these topics and decided to enroll in this doctor of ministry program, um, which focuses on prophetic leadership. There's something about not conceding to the status quo that's really important, and about having a will for life-giving change. It's not about changes for change's sake. There's so much that we live in and make concessions to because it's just the way things are, and we don't ask the questions, why? Why is it this way? Does it have to be this way? And, you know, you think about that promise of a new heaven and a new earth, right? You think about that, I am making all things new. Sometimes you wonder how long we have to wait, God. And then you realize, well, you know, maybe part of that is the invitation to be part of creating things here and now right i mean we're not given sacred stories to sit there and admire them we're also given sacred stories to step into them.
2: yeah that's so needed i think to to wisely um challenge the systems and structures um to um acknowledge where they work and where they're congruent with the ways of god and the purposes of god and where they are um incompatible with the ways and purposes of God. We, we need wise leaders like that. And I'm encouraged just to hear that. I'm encouraged to hear there's a program that's helping um, pastors, ministers um, strengthen and hone those gifts um, and learn how to wisely step into that area of giftedness. So um, others will pay attention and, and, and hopefully follow Really interesting. Well, take us, Carrie, into um, the Wisconsin Council of Churches. How did that call come? You started to tell us that it was a really nice blend of a lot of passions and interests, and it was kind of a dream job in many ways. I want to explore what the Wisconsin Council of Churches does, and I want to do that in quite a lot of detail. But uh, if you would, just Take our listeners through your sense of call to the mission of WCC. And um, how did you end up there? I think you've been there six or seven years now. Is that correct?
1: I am in my fifth year.
2: Fifth year. Okay. So I overstated it a bit, but take us back to the discerning that call. And then your transition to Wisconsin Council of Churches.
1: Um, so I had been with this lovely congregation for about seven years and started to get that Holy Spirit itch, but didn't know where it was leading and had just prepared, again, that speed dating profile, right? Just prepared my profile and sent it into the system. And across my social media newsfeed came the job description for the Wisconsin Council of Churches. So, you know, I made my heart ready and the opportunity appeared. Um, and I looked at it, and I said, well, huh, I've never thought of this, but I have done that. I could do that. That sounds really interesting. Oh, no, Holy Spirit, what are you up to? I had never seen myself doing this work. I'm an accidental ecumenist. I had always seen myself being in the local parish, but once I had stepped into this position after I went through the hiring process, which again went so ridiculously smoothly that God must have been in it, I realized it it was like a Venn diagram of all of my, my gifts and my passions and my excitements. Before I was at the local church, while I was Working my way through seminary, I was a nonprofit executive in a direct service agency. So we had been helping victims of family violence and working on racial and economic justice. Um, it's very direct service, justice oriented work, helping people who had been on the margins and facing very difficult situations. And so I had this heart for justice. And then in the local church, I had discovered this passion for the vitality of the church and this love for the people of the local church. And I've had this work experience of helping organizations turn around, transition, revitalize. And then I come here to the Wisconsin Council of Churches, And the the call is to help the council figure out what it is supposed to be in the 21st century and to have a heart for the vitality of the church and to attend to the work of justice being done by churches together. And so I'm here and it makes my heart sing because all of these things are here in one place.
2: Yeah. So uh, take, take us into the mission. You've started to do this, but um, the mission of the Wisconsin council of churches, um, what are you called to do? And, um, and there are a couple of lines that I particularly want to touch on. If you don't, that you use to describe your, your mission, but what is the mission of the organization? And then um Maybe formally, and then how you would describe it informally, and then talk about um, your work not only in Madison but really across the the whole state.
1: So fundamentally, the work of the council is the ecumenical mission, seeking out the visible unity of the church.
2: And why why is that important? Let me just stop you right there because you've hit on something. Why is that important, Carrie?
1: um we're very good at being fractured. If you look at the church family tree, it has so many branches, right? You have a schism here, you have a church fight there. Um you have a reformation there. Um and next thing you know, you have gone from, you know, having one united <laughs> to having this multiplicity of branches. Now I I glory in diversity. I love diversity and multiplicity. And there's so much exciting about it. I love talking about the diversity of the church. And yet so much of what we have in the diversity of the church has come about by way of brokenness. And part of our call here is... To reconnect and find ways to heal. And that doesn't necessarily mean institutional unity, but it may mean missional unity and connection. It may mean doing things together, being able to talk with one another, which, you know, sometimes is harder than you think, worshiping together, sharing. You name it. In some cases, it's been years, decades, centuries, millennia, right? And it's it's important work for us to do, and it's a witness to the world that we can get over our fractures.
2: Yeah. So, how do you find? Uh, how do you discern those places of potential unity or working together, um, and then? programmatically how does that play out in the life of wisconsin council churches
1: some of it is sheer opportunity landing in your lap you get an email from someone saying hey is anybody planning an event for the week of prayer for christian unity which comes around once a year and the answer is Well, nobody's doing that in your area yet, but we would love it if you did. Can we help serve you up some contacts in your area? And then we celebrate the thing that happens. Um, Sometimes we foster it ourselves. We say, hey, there's a need in this part of the state because there are a lot of churches closing. And what would it be like to think this through in a strategic way? Do you think we could? get regional ministers together to talk about it. Sometimes we do it in in the way that we're doing together in our collaboration, which I know we're going to talk about a little bit later, where we come up with this great idea for a project that spans all kinds of churches, uh, and we go hunting for funding for it, and we get to do really exciting projects.
2: I'm assuming that there are things you have just been working on for a long time, issues of justice. Um, talk through some of those established programs that that are indicative of the Wisconsin Council of Churches and maybe other state-based Council of Churches as well. Things that are going to require a lot of attention uh, until Christ returns. <laughs> and and how you go about that work Um how you work with churches to continue to to seek momentum in some of these places and, and on some of these issues that just have been thorny and difficult for the church and for um, humanity over, over many, many years and, you know, centuries even.
1: Our justice and peace work has definitely taken different forms over the decades. the, The Wisconsin Council of Churches has been around for 75 years in Wisconsin. Um, It's part of this broader ecumenical movement. There's a World Council of Churches. There's a National Council of Churches. In some states, there's a statewide council. There are regional councils. There are city-based organizations. We're not really hierarchical, but we connect. I would say... Every council has some way of making sure regional leaders connect to one another. Every council cares about different justice concerns in their area. Every council cares about the well-being of pastors and leaders. The way we live that out varies significantly. Wisconsin Council of Churches actually was established in part because the church leaders looked around at the various human needs in the wake of the Depression and said, these are too big for any one of us to tackle alone. Let's get together and see if we can do a better job. So perhaps not surprisingly, We've got some expertise in talking and thinking theologically about hunger and poverty, in equipping churches to think through that, in speaking with the legislature on that from a faith basis. Our goal is always not to come at it as raging partisans because we're a nonpartisan organization. Our goal is to say we are people of faith and grounded as people of faith in Scripture and tradition. This is how we understand what is happening today. Perhaps there's another way.
2: Yeah, so that's an important point. For those who might be um, less familiar with the work of Council of Churches, the advocacy Uh, the nonpartisan advocacy to raise up institutionally the visibility of the church um, and the role that it can play in society to affect positive change. I I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, in years prior, this institutionally, this may have been more obvious. Maybe it's becoming a bit more difficult in some ways. Um, But I, you know, it's, it's an important point, I think, that needs to be made, uh, and an important work that the council does to institutionally raise the voice of the healing potential of the church in society
1: right. and it's it's not always that we do it or our staff does it either. It's that we equip people in local congregations who want to do it because ultimately, There are only so many things a relatively small staff can do, but we connect 2,000 congregations across the state and a million people in those congregations. Faithful Christians can do a lot, and that can be done in their local communities. That can be done talking to their legislators elsewhere, and that's the question. Can we help people make the connection between their faith, the issues they're seeing on the ground, and the policies that may be making those issues worse than they have to be.
2: Right. So in some ways, you're, you're, in, you're not an agency, but you're, you, I'm going to use that term, you're an agency equipping people to exercise their agency.
1: There you go. You know, how, how do we help people connect Jesus and justice in public?
2: What would be your assessment of the the state of the church in Wisconsin?
1: I would say there are things to be hopeful about. And like the society in which we're embedded, there are always deep concerns. Wisconsin is one of the most segregated and polarized places in the United States and the church is not immune from that but we still see these these beautiful places of possibility happening where where we overcome that where we manage to overcome that and the spirit is at play and we actually manage to pay attention to the spirit being at play And if we can manage to do that in some places, then maybe we can manage to do that in more places. So I don't think we can ever be hopeless, but we need to be hopeful and do something with that hope.
2: Yeah, that reminds me of some of the language in your mission statement. Uh, I believe it's your mission, mission statement where you talk about holy imagination. I wonder if you could, yeah, I wonder if you could um, exegete what you mean by that. uh, Help us understand um, the intention of that statement and how it plays out, even in the context of the body of Christ across Wisconsin, where it's ailing and where it's flourishing.
1: You're going into some of my favorite words now. So when we started thinking about how we do this work of Christian unity, We started thinking about the values and the norms and like all those business school things, right? And we realized that we needed to narrow down the sense of what mattered to us. How did we wanna do this work? And after spending several retreat days together We came down to these three terms courage and justice and holy imagination as really the animating values for what we do. And again, it's not about what the staff and the board and the volunteers of the council do, it's how can we help the churches in Wisconsin, the faithful Christians of Wisconsin live and minister with more of all of these, we started asking, you know, what's what's the big problem of the world that we think we might be able to have some impact on? And we realized that the big problem in the world and the church is a shortage of holy imagination. And if the church doesn't have it, how can we possibly offer that as a gift to the world? So we needed to find ways to cultivate that imagination in the church and cultivate the ability of the church to offer that into the world. Now, you're going to ask me, so what is holy imagination anyway?
2: That's where I was going.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The briefest way I can offer it to you is, that place where we connect our imagination with God's imagination, the, the work of the spirit, the, the place where God is calling us to. God's, you might say God's will or God's dream for the world, depending on how you formulate those things. Holy imagination is where those places come together. So it's it's not just our our fantasies, our flight of fantasy of, oh, I want to do this with the church. And so, you know, that taps into that conversation we had earlier about discernment, right? But it's got that sense of creativity in it, that sense of of spirit-driven playfulness, the ability to be open-minded and open-hearted. We have a, a document we wrote up actually, um that's A a theological underpinning for the the shorter version of this um, that I spent several writing days with our unity and relations group for this, thinking through you know what's what's the scripture that anchors this? What's the tradition that anchors this? And there were such life giving days. You find that spending time talking and thinking and praying about courage and justice and holy imagination, list your spirit.
2: Yeah, it reminds me of kind of the the, um, discipline of appreciative inquiry um, that is often used where rather than focusing on everything that's wrong, you focus on possibility, right, and things that are good. So let me test this a little bit. I because I, I'm sure you've had these experiences, but let's say you have an opportunity to sit over coffee with a highly conservative church leader and a highly progressive church leader. So kind of the different ends of the maybe political spectrum. And you know, this is would be a re, a real situation for you in Wisconsin. You might have, you know, Madison or a Milwaukee-based church, and you have uh, and these these aren't hard categories, but you might have a more um, rural setting, and you might have a very different political spectrum that you're experiencing. What would you like the conservative leader to hear from the progressive leader or the the conservative pastor to hear from the progressive pastor, and vice versa what having a chance to work across that broad spectrum, what would you hope that they might learn from one another and 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 i I asked this question with. Holy imagination for how you might actually help us think broadly more, you know, uh, more culturally around some of the divisions that we face um, in our world.
1: My approach, my hope is always to move beyond the one and done, which usually results in me having a very full calendar.
2: (laughs) One and done being a single meeting. Correct. Okay, yeah. So let's take this to, you know, you get an opportunity to sit with these pastors over a number of coffees, okay, just to extend it out.
1: Everybody's going to come into these with an agenda, right? Like, I want them to hear this, and I want them to hear that. Realistically, I lean back on one of my favorite definitions of church. I mean, we have to be church together, right? Right. I mean, if, if we're going to do this thing, we have to be church together, micro and macro. And so I, I think about this. I think about gather the people, break the bread, tell the stories. So I want them to start by knowing one another as people. I'm going to throw the agendas out the window. <laughs> I want these folks to know one another as children of God to be more human and humane with one another. So how can we listen and hear one another if if we don't actually know one another as people, right? Otherwise, they're just going to be their agenda. They're going to be the label. It's really hard in our culture to slow things down and move to relationship before outcome. It, it drives people batty to say, you know, this meeting is not about outcomes. And everybody goes, no, tell me your favorite Bible story. Tell me who your mother's mother was. Share with me your favorite meal. Do these human things with one another. Start there. And, you know, maybe we'll get to a place where we can trust one another to talk about these less important things.
2: Great wisdom. I want to rewrite the script uh, of this podcast (laughs) based on that interaction. Yeah, I think it's so important. I think we do have a a real challenge in slowing down and putting objectives or outcomes aside, right? We're so mission-driven that we can forget the mission. The uh, capital M mission for the small M mission, right? So really helpful um, input. And I know you broker those kinds of conversations or just guide those kinds of conversations so well. Um, one of the things that you have done really well in our community is to help churches think through their COVID response. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. You, um, The Wisconsin Council of Churches has played a significant role and helping churches think through this. And you become uh, a bit of an expert. Um, and I think have done some traveling and some work around, maybe not traveling, but have consulted around the country uh, on this very issue. Um, how did that come about? And what have you learned through this experience?
1: It's one of those, if you build it, they will come sorts of moments. We got involved because of the the hazard of somebody needs to do this and nobody's doing this yet. Um, We saw a need to translate public health recommendations for a faith-based audience. Super early on, I think it was February before the pandemic really hit Wisconsin, our staff said, wouldn't it be nice to have a webinar on epidemic preparedness for faith-based organizations? because you know we saw this out there. And we said, yeah, and we started putting that together. And then three days before that webinar, we realized, oh no, we actually need to have a whole webinar on how to do virtual church. <laughs> and then it just kept moving on from there. And what we discovered is that People in Wisconsin saw and appreciated and shared the resources, and then shared and shared and shared from there. And then all of a sudden, we found out like somebody's regional Presbyterian meeting shared it with all of the other regional Presbyterian leaders. And then um, the main council of churches shared it. And then we found out somebody in Alaska shared it. And so it has literally been shared across the country and outside of the continental US now. So it's it's the, the hazard of somebody needs to do this and let's do it and let's find reliable people to give us the information. We may not be content experts, but we're context experts. And so we married the content to the context and that really became our niche.
2: I wonder if you could give a couple of examples, uh, just really particular examples of how you've been helpful, stories of how you have helped a congregation or a set of congregations navigate this this challenging season.
1: So one example um, might be a church that's exploring models for how to require vaccinations they want to know hey are there are there other churches out there expecting vaccinations of those who are on the premises what does that look like our staff did research provided some information on different tiers of expectations so Some churches are requiring it of everyone who's a worship leader or everyone who works with children. Or there are some churches that are saying everyone who is on the physical premises, we expect to be vaccinated. Um, We found some model language that was used, and we did a little bit of theologizing with the leaders of the church. So if this is a route you choose to go, here are some ways of thinking about this theologically you want to consider. Um, Because ultimately, again, it's not just a policy, it's the church doing a thing. And the church doing a thing always has freight. It always has meaning. And it's always God connected, even if we don't intend it to be, we need to be cognizant of that.
2: Oh, that's a helpful example. Thank you. Well, let's, um, let's turn a little bit and talk about um, this project that we're a part of at Upper House, as, as well as collaboration project in the University of Dubuque Theological Seminary. The Wisconsin Council of Churches is the lead on this project we call Awaken and Dane. And I wonder if you would just tell us about Awaken Dane. What does it hope to accomplish? And um, what are we learning so far?
1: Well, you know, we've been talking about becoming uh, people of relationship rather than outcomes, right? And that's part of what awakened dane is about. We variously described it as a, a community, a cohort. It's really fundamentally a movement of churches because we're we're building up to um, a good number of churches in Dane County who will have participated in this over the five year lifespan of the project. We really want to get away from the belly button questions, I call them, that churches like to ask, like the navel gazing questions of how you're going to survive, right? Those inward focused things. And instead, start asking those questions of what God's up to in the community and how we can join in. So it's this multi-year experiment. I mean, nobody's ever done this program before. We collaboratively, all of our groups, we came up with this model together um, and we're doing it with cohorts of churches and pastors and leaders and coaches. And it's already showing its ability to be life-giving. I mean, we've had people say, oh, I was gonna skip this, this month because my my day was absolutely crazy, but I knew I needed this. I mean, what a testimony for a project like this! And you know, we're still in the relatively early stages of it, and so you know, you get people around a table to explore scripture together and pray together and build these life giving relationships. And you get people to look at the community they live in and, again, have those, those discerning eyes, those, those eyes that say, hey, what's going on here? And you put all of that knowing, all those ways of knowing together, and you see what God does with it, and it's going to be something amazing, um, and you trust in the Spirit.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a great uh, summary statement. Um, as someone who has often had to try to describe what it is that we're doing in Awakened Dane, um, I commend you for a, a really excellent summary. I, I think I failed to mention that this is a a project that is supported by the Lilly Endowment around their Thriving Congregations Initiative, and so there are literally, um, I think, over a hundred other. Right, I can't remember the. Yeah, and over 100 other projects of significant scope and scale around the country that are helping um, congregations thrive. And um, this is our version, our um, expression in Dane County um, of what this might look like. Carrie, talk to us a little bit about um, what happens when we gather everybody together Uh, in a single plenary session where we're learning together, everyone in the room, and then what happens um, out in particular churches, pastors with their, their congregants. How does that, how do those two ends of the spectrum come together in what we hope is a really rich learning experience?
1: Well, I think that's a unique part of this model. Sometimes you have Leadership groups and churches who go off and learn things and they don't always connect it back to the congregation, right? And then sometimes you have congregations that do things, but they don't necessarily have learning from outside the congregation. And I love how we have these multiple tiers of engagement throughout the process. So each church that goes through the program will have a chance to experience, is it eight plenaries, I believe.
2: There's eight in total. The cohorts run um, two years. So you would experience four of the eight plenaries.
1: So we have different topics that we think are germane to the the Dane County experience and Dane County community. So for example, our, our very first one that we recently had was belonging with Parker Palmer which was just so deep and full of wisdom. And we'll continue to have these throughout. People can hear a a speaker who has some sense of the community and its dynamics, and then in their cohort groups really reflect on that. And then in addition to that, the churches, each in their own church group, So the pastor and a team of, say, seven or eight lay leaders have a chance to explore their local community, to reflect on scripture together, to pray, and to see how everything they're receiving works together. And they can even discern, if they'd like to, to connect that work more deeply into what the congregation is doing. One of the cool things about this project, and we haven't quite gotten to that point yet because we're not two years in with anybody, but at the end of this two year experience, there is a fund for experiments. And so as as people are getting to this point of discernment at the end of that two years, if people have a sense that God is calling them to try something in connection with their local community, they can come back to the team and say, hey, we have this idea. Can we have this little micro grant to give it a start? I think you put all of these pieces together and it's a really rich, exciting opportunity for any church to be a part of.
2: Yeah. And there's a wonderful curriculum. The missional network has helped with us, helped us with a curriculum that, that guides churches and pastors through this process. So.
1: Right. It's, it's modules. So again, it's, e- it's an easy chunk. It's not something that feels overwhelming. Um, it's, it's, I want to say it's easy, but not simplistic.
2: Kerry, okay, if uh, their are church leaders listening, um, if a pastor or a lay leader would love to, you know, would like to inquire about possibly joining with Awaken Dane, what should they do?
1: Probably the fastest place to send them is awakendane.org. And they can go there and get a fact sheet and some videos and some photos and get a sense of what the project is like, if you've forgotten any of the details of what we just said. Um, And then you can also get a contact form to contact our program director. And then from there, we can have a chat with you and get you hooked into the next cycle that's starting up.
2: Yeah, and these cycles start every year. And so we'd love to connect you and we'll put all the details in the show notes as well. So you'll be able to access more information there. Carrie, I'm moving toward the end of our conversation, but I want to ask you, um, what are you hopeful about? As you think about the church, you reflect back on God's faithfulness in your life, leading you through these stages of your life, the leadership um, that um, you're involved in now, um, the work of the Wisconsin Council of Churches. what, What brings you hope at this point
0: of your life? God's
1: up to something. God's always up to something. And, you know, sometimes it's going to be a little bit more restful and peaceful. And sometimes it's going to be a little bit more of a wild ride. But I can trust that God is in the world and active in the world. And all I have to do is stay open to where that might be.
2: Such an important word. One of the things I really appreciate about you, Carrie, is um, the way that you extend a blessing at the end of a meeting. Um, You've done this a number of times, meetings I've been involved with, and you bless the participants as the meeting ends. And I, I want to ask you to do that for our listeners, to, to, to offer a blessing here at the end of our um, conversation. But I also, I'm curious about where you learned to do that and um, what you've learned along the way from doing it.
1: I do a lot of work with leaders who care for other leaders. The sort of people who carry a lot, and don't often get prayed for in a meeting and sure you know i i could offer to pray and you know that's one thing and i could you know offer hey you know can can i have your joys and concerns and we'll the problem is when you ask for joys and concerns lots of times people don't ask for themselves so even then you don't necessarily get what's on people's hearts. And so instead of giving them out and giving them that extra burden of saying, oh gosh, who are all the people you're carrying? Who do you have to remember and everything? It just breaks the pattern. The reality is we all need to remember that we're blessed when I, you know, I'm in a tradition that does infant or adult baptisms. When I have done an infant baptism, you know, part part of what I say to the person being baptized is you are precious and you're beautiful and you are loved. And we don't get Enough of that. We don't get enough of those kinds of blessings, those sacred stories about ourselves. And so, I think any time you have a chance to offer that kind of word to people, you ought to be doing it.
2: Yeah, thank you. Well, as someone who's been on the receiving end of your blessings, I am grateful for um, that commitment and the way you have blessed me. I wonder if you would leave me and leave our listeners offer a blessing as we depart today.
1: I would be happy to let's bring our spirits to a place of receiving gifts. Holy one, we know you are a giver of all good things. And so I ask. On behalf of my colleagues and your church, a blessing for all those who hear this. A blessing for my colleague John and his team at Upper House. A blessing for the church in Wisconsin. For all those. Weep or watch for all those who rejoice. Holy One, I ask a blessing for everyone today. Who needs help making it through this day. Who needs help remembering the sacred stories and their connection to them. Who needs help finding that place of holy imagination, who needs help remembering that they are precious and beautiful and so, so loved. Holy One, we thank you for all your gifts. We receive your blessings. We trust in your presence as you hold us in the palm of a generous hand.
2: Amen. Amen. Carrie, thank you so much. I am so glad you are the executive director of the Wisconsin Council of Churches, and I'm glad to count you as a friend, and I'm glad to have spent these moments with you today.
1: You as well. You take good care, John.
2: Thank you, Carrie.
1: The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Baer, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.